as we said before, we're beginning a new worship series on Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, which starts today. Before I read the text for us this morning, though, I want to give a little bit of context and some history to the letter to the church in Corinth to get us started on this journey. Paul went on three missionary journeys and perhaps founded this church on his first missionary journey. And during his third journey, while he was staying in Ephesus, he hears a report from Chloe or Chloe's people that there's things going on in Corinth. There's divisions, there's disunity, there's arguing. And so when Paul hears this, he decides to write a letter. And one of the interesting things about this letter, well, there's a bunch of interesting things, but one of the interesting things is that historians actually believe that Paul wrote the entirety of this letter at one time while he was in Ephesus, whereas some of the other letters maybe was kind of pieced together at different times and packaged together as one letter. But historians think this was actually all written at one occasion, at one time. And I believe in this text that we base so much of our theological understandings about who God is from these letters of the New Testament that we see Paul's pastoral heart in this text. This is Paul as pastor, as a person who loves and cares for this church community in Corinth and wants to see it flourish and live life to the fullest in Jesus Christ. We really see Paul's pastoral heart in this text. One of the interesting things about interpreting a letter is how many of you listen to podcasts or listen to the radio? Some of you listen to, I listen to podcasts a lot. And oftentimes in podcasts, they try to create a scenario in which there's two or three people having a conversation or do a, a discussion so that it sounds like while you're listening to it that you're involved in a conversation too. But sometimes I listen to podcasts where just one person is speaking and I heard one recently where they said, oh, this is a fascinating discussion or conversation. And I said, well, it's not really a conversation or discussion because you're the only one talking <laughs> for the last half an hour. It's a monologue. One person is speaking and I'm listening. And that's what it feels like when we look at Paul's letters too. We don't have both sides of the story. We have Paul's writings and we can discern and deduce some things that are going on, but we really have Paul's writings. It's a monologue. And so that's an interesting challenge sometimes when it comes to interpreting a text, to understanding both what Paul is saying to this church and then what is the saying to us? What is God saying to us as a result of what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth? So we're going to hear some pastoral wisdom today and for the next 16 weeks throughout the rest of the summer from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. You can follow along now in the screens or you can open up the few Bibles in front of you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Listen to God's word. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. 
By him you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. This is the gift of God's word. Join me in prayer. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A few months ago in worship, I think it was on the Mexico mission trip sharing service, I shared with you all in this space that I was raised a vegetarian and I've never actually eaten meat before. And had I lived in prehistoric times, I would have been a gatherer, not a hunter. Though I don't eat meat, I've learned a great deal about hunting and fishing from my wife, Katie. Katie was born and raised in Alaska, and her family hunts and fishes for all of the meat that they eat. We've been together for 13 or 14 years now, Katie and I, and I've come to learn a great deal about fishing and hunting in those years. And in fact, whenever we go back to Alaska, which hopefully we will this summer at some point, uh, we often go fishing. And when we are on the Prince William Sound, Katie loves fishing for halibut, for silver salmon, for rockfish. And when I'm there, I fish for glacier ice. It's <laughs> hard to see on that boat, but there's a rubber bucket and there's me standing next to my catch, glacier ice. <laughs> In Prince William Sound, there are these massive glaciers because it's, um, it's a rainforest and they have so many hundreds of inches of precipitation year round that it freezes into these massive glaciers and they meet the ocean. It's truly an incredible place. And as the glaciers have been receding and melting, chunks of those glaciers fall into the Prince William Sound. And it's my job when I'm there as a part of the family to catch this glacier ice. Why? Because we have a refrigerator that needs to keep the fish cool and there's no electricity where we are. So we use glacier ice to keep the, to keep the fish cold. One thing I've learned about fishing, both for fish and for glacier ice, is the importance of a good net. A good net. Oftentimes when the fish gets close to the boat, and you're reeling it in and it's getting difficult and you want to scoop it up and bring it into the boat, you need a good net. 
I've seen uh, halibut, which is a very strange, weird-looking fish. I don't know if any of you have seen a halibut in real life, but it is a strange-looking fish. It's a bottom dweller, so everything's kind of on the side. It doesn't have a 3D perspective. It's flat, and they can range in size from 30 pounds to 200 pounds. And so trying to drag something that's 150 or 200 pounds into a boat is a terrifying idea, okay? <laughs> it's a scary thing. So you can't just reel it in and throw it into the back of the boat. You need a good net to capture it, to bring it in. And likewise, when it comes to glacier ice, you can't just pick up a piece of glacier ice. You have to secure it first with a net. You need a good net. A bad net would allow the fish to escape or the ice to not safely make a space for me to chip away at it and bring it in and put it in the trash can as you saw in that photo. So caring for and having a good net is important to the fishing process. At the heart of this introduction to Paul's letter to the church in Corinth is a plea to the church to have unity, to be united in the same mind and the same purpose. As I said earlier, Paul heard from Chloe's people that there are divisions, there's disunity happening at the church in Corinth, and that's why Paul is writing them this letter, so that they would be unified in same mind and same purpose. This week as I was studying this letter and one of the commentaries I was reading, observed that the Greek word for united, which is katartizo, that word appears both in Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4. And the stories are the same in both of those gospels. And the story is the story of when Jesus goes to the Sea of Galilee to call the first disciples, he finds some fishers on the side of the lake. And the fishers are mending their nets. They're mending their nets. They're either taking care of them for after their fishing or they're preparing their nets to get ready to go back out for fishing. And the Greek word katartizo is that word mending, which is the word for to have unity. They're the same word, but used differently in one context and in the other. I think that vision of the first disciples mending the nets, caring for the nets, taking care of them, is a biblical metaphor for the Corinthians and for us about what unity and having the same mind and the same purpose looks like. Mending the nets. For as we know, the fishers were both asked to follow Jesus immediately after they were called. And then Jesus sent them out to do something even more bizarre than fishing for glacier ice, which was to fish for people. And no doubt, we need to have unity on our mind. We really do. The church did then. The church needs to have unity on our mind now. Because it's so easy to sympathize with the Corinthians, I think, in this regard. Because we are formed in a history of disunity as a Christian context. As part of the Reformed tradition and Protestants, it is so easy to read those first few sentences and hear them as directly applicable to our lives. You know how Paul says, some are saying they belong to Apollos, some to Paul, some to Cephas, some to Jesus. We live in a world that is so fragmented also in our Christian church, where some might say they belong to Luther, some Calvin, some Wesley, some the Pope. At a large scale, disunity is readily known in our midst. But even on a smaller scale, in our own congregation, I know we experience division and disunity too. That's a real experience that some of us have, have had, and 
we'll probably have moving forward as well. One of my professors, and he is now the president of Princeton Theological Seminary, Craig Barnes, he says that hurt feelings is simply a natural byproduct of trying to create and build community. Humans are not perfect. We hurt each other. There is wear and tear on the community, the community at large, and the community small too. There's real wear and tear to our community. Much like when we think about this idea of the biblical metaphor of carrying and mending the nets, there's a real wear and tear that takes place on nets when fishing happens. So there too is a wear and tear that takes place within our church context as well. Disunity, it takes back the nets. It hurts the nets. There's wear and tear. So I think that's why this letter will be so refreshing for us as we read it this summer, because we need to hear this call also to be united in the same mind and the same purpose, just like the Corinthians did in 55 AD. And perhaps as we pay attention to this letter, we will notice something for ourselves about what it looks like to mend our nets in the here and now for the work that God has called us to. And I wanna notice a couple of things for us as we begin this long journey of looking at Paul's letter to the church in Corinth and, and wondering together, just the beginnings of wonderings about what is at stake in this idea of being united around the same mind and the same purpose and what that looks like. I wanna notice two verses for us this morning. The, the first verse I wanna notice is verse nine, which says that God is faithful and it is God that has called you into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who have been around boats in your life, especially at times of fishing, you'll know that there has this incredible amount of teamwork that has to take place in order to fish well. At least in my mind, prior to going fishing in Alaska, I had a vision of people sitting by the lake and just throwing something in and sitting there and waiting for a little while, and then they catch a fish. Not on Prince William Sound. Um, someone needs to drive the boat, keep a good pace for trolling. Someone's holding the rod. Oftentimes it's helpful to have somebody else keeping an eye out for other situations developing on the water. It's always good to have somebody making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That's my job. And then when you actually catch the fish, there's this whole host of important coordination and steps that are taken to secure the boat and bring it in, or to secure the fish and bring it into the boat. There's this incredible amount of coordination and teamwork that's paramount to fishing well. And I think the same could be said for the church too. And when we look at verse nine, perhaps we forget, but what a beautiful reminder that God is faithful and that it is through God that we're called into fellowship with Jesus, but together. Paul's letter is to the brothers and sisters. It's not just to you individually, but this is a reminder that we were called into fellowship together for the same mind and the same purpose. Now, the Corinthian church was profoundly a diverse place. Corinth was a diverse place. But many assume that the early church was made up of only poor persons. And that was probably true in many situations, that it was the poor that were drawn to the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And there were many slaves and poor people that were part of the church in Corinth. But it seems that there were also persons who held positions of authority and wealth and uh, economic status in Corinth as well. There was a diverse community present in that church, nationally, economically, spiritually. Corinth is at the very bottom of the Greek peninsula, and so it was a place of commerce, 
a place of commerce. And I think as we all know, places that have diversity, it can be difficult to achieve unity. And so it's a helpful reminder at the very beginning to remember that it was God that called you into this relationship with Jesus, but with one another. God called us into this fellowship together. God called all of us in this room together into fellowship with Jesus and with one another. The second clue I want us to look at that has to help us with this idea of having the same mind and the same purpose is in verse 17. You can put verse 17 up if you want to, Jim. Verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I read the Bible and I get really confused. Like, I, I get really confused when I read the Bible. Um, this is a really confusing verse to me. Maybe it isn't for you. Maybe you're all biblical scholars and you know, you know more about this than me. But as I read this text, I thought, how in the world could we empty the power of the cross of Christ? Like, what could Paul do or not do or say or not say so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. This was so confusing to me all week long. And rather than just letting my confusion, setting it aside and moving along, it just dwelt within me. It just burrowed in me and I had to figure it out. Like what was causing me such confusion about this idea that what could we do to empty the power of the cross of Jesus Christ? So in times when I find myself deeply confused, um, I look at my bookshelf and I, <laughs> and I grab a good book. And this week, as I was sitting there, I, I grabbed this book by James Cone. It's a very famous, he's a very famous theologian, black liberation theologian. And this book is called God of the Oppressed. And on the front of it, it's hard to see, but it's a picture of Jesus on the cross. And I thought, maybe there's wisdom inside of this book about the cross of Christ. So, Jim, you can put up this quote. I, I found this while I was reading this, and I want to read it with you all. James Cone says this, Thus, the reality and the depth of God's presence in human suffering is revealed not only in Jesus' active struggle against suffering during his ministry, but especially in his death on the cross. The cross of Jesus reveals the extent of God's involvement in the suffering of the weak. God is not merely sympathetic with social pain of the poor, but becomes totally identified with them in their agony and pain. The pain of the oppressed is God's pain, for God takes their suffering as God's own. Wow, this is a, a powerful quote, and there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, but James Cohn goes on to say that it's for this reason that we as a Christian community ought to remember that when we suffer, that's how we know that God is near us because God has taken on suffering to identify with those of us who are suffering. It's not that God has placed suffering in our lives. That's not the kind of God who God is. God doesn't make us suffer, but God wants to identify with us in our suffering and free us from that suffering. And therefore, we should also struggle to minimize the suffering that exists in this world, to minimize the suffering that exists in this world. 
And as I was reading this text, I realized that my confusion about verse 17, which you can put back up on the screen if you'd like to, Jim, came because I've been steeped in Reformed theology for much of my Christianity. And the primary reason in which we understand the power of the cross in Reformed theology is a big theological term, penal substitutionary atonement. Don't repeat that after me. (laughs) Penal substitutionary atonement. There's a lot going on. But essentially this idea of penal substitutionary atonement is the idea that I am a sinner, and because I'm a sinner, I am do certain kinds of behaviors that should be treated towards me by God, which I should be put to death. Instead, I'm not. There's a substitution that takes place on my behalf. Jesus dies on the cross for me, and I am atoned. I'm forgiven as a result of that sin that happens in my life. And I realize I've been so formed by that idea that when I look at verse 17, that's, that's a thing that happened. So therefore, you can't empty the cross of its power because it, it sort of just happened. But then, as I started to think about what James Cone has to say here, it makes sense. It makes sense how you could empty the cross of its power. Because you could start to say things like, God is causing suffering to happen to me or I'm not seeking to bring about a minimizing of suffering in the world to make the world a better and just place a world that's filled with more love and grace and humility that is a way that we could empty the power of the cross and I think that's probably exactly what Paul was trying to say to the Corinthians too don't use eloquent wisdom. Don't use wise words. And, and friends, remember, the idea of the cross being something that could be powerful for us, they knew what the cross was all about. You know, we wear it around our necks. We have it in the sanctuary. It hangs. We see it as a prideful symbol. But it was a symbol of terror and suffering for the people in Corinth. They knew what it was. And so when they say the power of the cross, it was that idea that God loves me, that God would identify with me in suffering, would identify me with suffering. And therefore, we should have a similar purpose to minimize suffering in the world. We should not minimize the power of the cross, not empty the cross of its power, but all the more so to tell people about it. When we think back to this biblical metaphor of mending the nets, mending the nets, Mending the nets. You know, when Jesus called those disciples, they were mending their nets. They were taking care of them, getting ready to do the work they were doing or finishing up the work that they were doing. Then Jesus said, come and follow me. You're going to fish for humans. You're going to fish for people. They left those nets there. But they brought with them a wisdom about what was needed to do the work that they were called to be doing together as brothers and sisters They brought with them this idea that we need to work together. There will be wear and tear on us. There will be hurt. There will be frustrations in our midst. And so therefore, we need to mend them, to take care of them, to find healing in our church community context so that, so that we can engage in this ministry of telling people the good news that God has died on this cross, not just as penal substitutionary atonement, Yes, that's a piece of it. But also because if you are suffering, God wants to identify with you in your suffering. 
And God wants to minimize the suffering that exists in this world. And therefore, we can have that as a common core mind and purpose as a church to go and share love and grace and minimize the suffering that exists in this world. This is the ministry to which God has called us to do. This is the ministry that God longs for us to do. So the divisions that are taking place in the Corinthian church, friends, let's be united. Let's have the same mind, the same purpose. Let us care for the wear and tear in our midst. Let's mend the nets. We don't need physical nets to do the fishing that God's called us to, but we need to care for this net, our church community. We need to care for ourselves because God has called us to do great things in this world, truly to do great things. So may we be united, having the same mind and the same purpose. And this summer, I'm sure we're going to read a few more strange things in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. We will read strange things. We will read things that will confuse us. We will read things that might feel very familiar. But let us stay close to that which confuses us. Let's stay close to that which feels familiar. And in the process together, we will hear God speak to us as we read Corinthians together. May we not empty the power of the cross, but in humility do the work that God has called us to do. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious God, I give you thanks for all of those who have heard your call, that you said, here I am, come and follow me. I thank you for the wisdom from the brothers and sisters in the church in Corinth, from Chloe, from Paul. I thank you for James Cone. I thank you for you, God, and the way that you speak through people and the way you speak through your holy scriptures. Lord, will you continue to speak to us this summer? Will you teach us what it looks like to care for our community, to mend our nets? Lord, so that we can go out and do that which you have called us to do, which is to love this world. We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.